So why do we need a perfect high priest? It's all over the book of Hebrews, and the Bible mentions priests repeatedly. Well, we're going to dig into that powerful truth next on Daily in Christ. Hello once again, I'm Mark Van Oos, glad to join you as your teacher of the Word of God and your host. And this teaching in the book of Hebrews has indeed been very rich. I know, as I have been going through and preparing the lessons, God has been teaching me so much. And as we have come out of Hebrews chapter 6, which for many is a very scary chapter, uh, just a few verses that really seem to scare people, Christians, and has caused a lot of confusions. And two podcasts ago, two episodes ago, we really dug in to the beginning portion of Hebrews chapter 6, and particularly those verses 4 through 6 that just seem to scare so many Christians. In our last episode, we were talking about the basis of certain faith. Remember in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, it says, And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We have a tendency to see a verse like that and focus on ourselves. But actually, it's talking about the full assurance of hope until the end. And in our last podcast, by way of review, we talked about the engine of our faith walk. And this is verses 13 to 20 that talks about God making the promise to Abraham. And he swore an oath. And we came into the whole business of why God himself would make a promise and swear an oath. The Bible does say that your yes should be yes, that you shouldn't have to swear an oath. But God does these two powerful things to bring strong encouragement to us. And the outcome of the promise and the oath that God makes is God says, surely. He says, I will definitely do something for you. I will bless you with blessing. I will multiply you with multiplying. The Bible, Hebrews, brings up this man, Abraham, not as a study in history, but as a compelling point, drawing it a connection to us. And an understanding that just like Abraham, who grounded his faith on the integrity and the ability and the promise of God, so we also do the same thing. And there's actually more about this idea that comes up in Romans chapter 4. We're not going to get into that today, but I encourage you to go into Romans chapter 4 and explore how the certainty of Abraham's faith was based upon the integrity of God making the promise and that God is able to do what he promised. You know, the book of Hebrews and uh, Hebrews chapter 6 is not about scaring us. It's not about saying you can lose your salvation because Hebrews 6 in those scary verses is talking to those who are unsaved, who are putting their hope in anything or anyone else besides the Lord Jesus. But those of us who have placed our hope and our faith in him and his finished work, this gives us stability. 
It gives us an anchor of hope for our souls. It gives us safety because of this refuge that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us access into the intimate holy of holies of God. It's all because of Jesus. And really, the chief subject of the book of Hebrews is not ourselves, but rather the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, it's important just to take a few minutes and go over what we've talked about because there's a connection point, obviously, in the material that's brought out by the Spirit in Hebrews chapter 6. And the point is developed, it's built upon in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, and I encourage you to have your Bible along for these studies, I'd like you to open your Bible to Hebrews once again, chapter 7, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And actually, before we begin reading the scripture, let's just take a moment to turn to the Lord, the Holy Spirit, who is the author and the inspirer of God's holy word, the Bible. Father God, we thank you so much for your incredible love. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful, glorious truth of your heart, your purpose, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for the Bible, your holy word. And yet, Lord, I recognize that these words upon this page, uh, if we try to grasp this through our own human understanding, we will fall so far short of the completeness of revelation. And so, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, once again, turn the light on, bring illumination that we may know you better, Lord. Thank you, Father, that the Spirit who actually breathed these words to the writers of the text is the same Spirit who can bring light, enlightenment, wisdom, and understanding in the knowledge of you. Father, we would see Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would help each of us, myself included, come to a deeper understanding of the wonderfulness of Jesus, our great high priest. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, the subject of priests takes up four whole chapters in Hebrews, and that's really starting here in verse uh, chapter 7 is where a lot of priest talk begins. We're going to read to begin the first uh, several verses of uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Actually, before we get to that, let me just take a moment here to set up a very important thought, and that is, as I mentioned, that the subject of priests takes up four whole chapters in the book of Hebrews. The Bible talks about priests and priesthood repeatedly, and the Bible makes it clear that we need a priest. So why do we need a great high priest? Oh, this is so important to understand. As I was going over this material and asking for the Lord's leadership, it occurred to me that we in the 21st century really can't relate to the need for a priest. Now, there are some of us who have come from religion that emphasizes priests and priesthood. I actually came out of that background myself, and I have some sense of the idea of what a priest can do how a priest can bring us close to God. But really, the Bible isn't talking about priests of men, 
sinners, but rather the Bible ultimately is speaking of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to answer at the very beginning and bring up some important points of why we need a priest, it's so important to understand this. I'd like us to go back for a few minutes into Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, just three verses, but three very important verses, uh, verses 14 through 16, which reads, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What I'd like to do is go through these verses and practice what some have called mirror reading. Many times the Bible talks about God's solution and we tend to look at that and make a little bit of a disconnect in terms of understanding, well, what is this? A, what problem is this a solution to? And so by practicing mirror reading, we can distill from the text the problems, the issues, the needs that we have in our lives. And understanding those needs, we understand then why we need a great high priest. So going through these verses, practicing a little bit of mirror reading, Our first need that we can see, uh, verse 14b, is we need to get into heaven. We need to get into heaven. We need to get close to God. So that's the reason why we have a great high priest who has already gone ahead and passed through the heavens. You could say that Jesus has indeed made the way for us to get into heaven. A second reason based on these verses is that we are weak. So we need a great high priest who doesn't look down in our weakness and goes, what's your problem? Get your act together. Why can't you get things right? Why are you so pathetic and weak? No, we need someone, we need a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Another reason distilling out from Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 that we need a great high priest is because we are tempted and can sin. So we need a great high priest who was tempted in all ways yet without sin. That's in verse 15. Examining this text closely, we can see another need that we have and that is that we do not in and of ourselves have access to God and his grace. So we need a great high priest who makes possible a bold and confident access to the throne of grace. Verse 16. Another reason why we need a great high priest, we are guilty of the sin and wrong. And so we need mercy to spare us from the just punishment that is due us. We find that mercy that we need at the throne of God's grace because of what our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done for us. And a final reason behind why we need a great high priest is that we are needy. It says there in verse 16, and let me pull this out, 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find grace to help us in our time of need at the throne of God's grace because of what our great high priest has done for us. So there are the reasons that we could distill why in the world we need a great high priest. We need to get into heaven. We are weak. We are tempted and can sin. We do not have access to God and his grace. We are guilty of sin and wrong, and we are needy. Every single point is addressed by our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you another very, very powerful reason why we need a great high priest. And this one, when the Lord showed me, it just blew me away. The reason why we need a great high priest is that we have the tendency to think with all of these needs that we can get into heaven and uh, get strength because we're weak and, and avoid temptation and sin and, and access God in his grace. All of those things, we have this inborn tendency through our fallen mind to think. We look at ourselves and we go, oh, I'm not strong enough. Oh, I'm not holy enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. And the fact that we need a great high priest is God's most compelling way of saying that all of the goodness, all of the blessing, all of the righteousness, all of the holiness and purity of God is not based upon ourselves, but upon someone else altogether. Let me say that again. The reason for God blessing us, giving us righteousness, holiness, goodness, uh, everything that we need is not because of ourselves. It's because of someone else altogether. The fact that there needs to be a priest is proof positive that God's answer for our lives is not us. It's not us becoming better people. It's not us becoming more righteous. It's not us becoming less sinful. It's not us praying enough. It's not us reading the Bible enough. It's not us evangelizing enough. It's not us going to church enough. On and on and on. It's because of someone else and their righteousness and their performance. And that's the key element of the new covenant. That's the key element of grace. I can't say this enough, but grace is God loving you totally, blessing you totally, and accepting you totally, not because you are so good, but because he is that good. And another reason for a great high priest has to do with blood. Blood, again, is proof positive that it's nothing of ourselves that can come into play when it comes to deserving the blessing of God, deserving the acceptance of God, deserving the love of God. It has to do with someone else altogether, someone else's blood, someone else's life. In the Old Testament, there were priests and there was blood. But as we'll see in our study for the next couple of podcasts, it wasn't enough. But yet, there needed to be a priest and there needed to be blood. When a person came and they had sin, they didn't clean up their own act under the Old 
Testament or the Old Covenant. Rather, they relied upon a priest and an offering. And when they brought the offering, the priest didn't examine them. The priest examined their offering, which goes to prove that everything that we get from God is not based upon ourselves. It is based upon another. And that other person is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the towering figure of all 66 books of the Bible. And he certainly is the towering figure when it comes to the book of Hebrews. And now we're going to examine this wonderful one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest. And now we go to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's read verses 1 through 10 which says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, and let me back up a little bit into the last um, two verses of Hebrews 6. It says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Well, we're going to stop right there. There is an awful lot in those verses, and let's just carefully and slowly unpack it one bit at a time. Now, just a little bit of uh, quick uh, definitions when it talked about the uh, Levitical priesthood, that is the uh, descendants of Levi, and that particular tribe was identified by God as those who would serve at the altar, and specifically Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses, was priest, and all the priests came through him. So the Levitical priesthood is points us to the priesthood under the old covenant, the covenant of law. Now we're going to get into this whole business of Melchizedek, and uh, it is indeed very interesting, this one whose name means king of righteousness, and he's also identified as king of Salem, 
Salem is a Semitic relative in the language, the Semitic uh, family of languages. It's similar to Salim or Shalom. And so that means, and it's identified here in the text, king of peace. So there is this Melchizedek who, whose name means king of righteousness, who is king of peace. Well, we need to go back for a little bit of a backgrounder here and, and go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14, where the whole subject of Melchizedek comes up. And this is the account to which Hebrews 7 points to. So it's important to understand the story, the backstory, so that we have a better appreciation about what's being unfolded here in Hebrews chapter 7. And what I'm going to do is kind of give a quick summation of what's happening in the verses that lead up to uh, the talk about Melchizedek and what happened at the time of Abraham. You may recall that Abraham and uh, his nephew or his relative Lot, uh, there was some infighting that was going on between their two groups. And so they went separate ways. Abraham went up into the region, uh, Canaan's area, and Lot settled in the region, a very beautiful, fertile region, uh, down as far as Sodom. It was at this point that there were pagan kings who were having a bit of a power struggle. Uh, The first one was Kurdalamur, Kurdalamur. Now, there's a lot of talk about what that name means, but some believe that it means uh, basically the the servant of a pagan god. This particular king, Kutterlamer, was uh, one that had uh, conscripted several neighboring kingdoms to his service. And uh, the king of Sodom, as well as the kings of several other locales, served Kadalamer, this pagan king, for 12 years. Eventually, they got a little tired of that and rebelled against this Kadalamer guy. And they enlisted the assistance of a few other kings in the rebellion. Well, Kadalamer was not one to be... uh, fooled around with, and he crushed the rebellion. And in the midst of this crushing of the rebellion, and remember, one of the kings that rebelled against Kurtalamer was the king of Sodom. Remember, Lot was living in that region, and in the midst of the melee, uh, Lot was captured. Uh, this is a lot like, uh, you know, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or read the books, when Merry and Pippin were hauled off by the Urukai, and... Um, He's taken captive. Well, word gets back to Abraham about the dilemma and the peril of his uh, relative Lot. And so Abraham and 318 men, that's all, 318 men go on a rescue operation of Lot. Well, I can tell you that uh, 318 against tens of thousands, uh, there should be no battle at all. They should be crushed. Well, in fact, what happened was Abraham and his 318 men not only prevailed, they slaughtered the enemy. Hebrews 7.1 says this, and that is obviously the, the divine result of God's intervention. And Lot is rescued. And perhaps even more significantly, had Abraham and God 
not intervened in this situation, the resulting combination of forces likely would have attacked Canaan's land, the promised land. So that's the story in Genesis chapter 14 leading up to this occasion when this uh, person named Melchizedek shows up on the scene. And we want to go to uh, Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 to pick up the story. It says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Accept only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, as Anner, Eshkel and Mamer, let them take their portion. So, in a place called the Valley of Sheva, which means the King's Valley, arises one. Now, there is a bunch of kings that have been in this story, right? There was a, a bunch of kings that were under the conscription of Chertolamer, and then there was the rebellion, and then there was uh, the crushing of the rebellion. So, there in the King's Valley comes a type of the king of kings to come, Melchizedek. Now, there is a lot of discussion and debate about this character, Melchizedek. Some people say this is a um, pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others say, no, 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 no. He was an actual king, uh, a man uh, who was living in the area, and he was a type of, of the Lord to come. You know what? It doesn't really matter because the book of Hebrews doesn't really get into the question. The book of Hebrews says that this Melchizedek is a type of the one who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be both king and priest. So we see that uh, this Melchizedek comes bringing bread and wine. Isn't that significant? What did the Lord do with the Last Supper? Bread and wine. And then it says in verse 19 that he blessed Abram, who was Abram at the time, not Abraham yet, and saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here is Abram, Abraham, receiving blessing, a priestly blessing, a kingly blessing from this one called Melchizedek. And I'm going to tell you that there is a tremendous difference that the blessing of God makes in Abraham's life. As a matter of fact, let me say this. There is an incredible difference that the blessing of God makes in our lives. You know, it's so easy for us to look at Abraham and say, oh, he's a champion of faith. Do you know how many times Abraham messed up? I mean, really messed up bad. It isn't, Abraham's faith isn't based upon how good Abraham is. Abraham's faith 
is based upon the the goodness and the blessing of God. And look at what the difference, the blessing of God made in Abraham's life. Look at verse 20. It says that Abraham gave a tenth of all, all the spoils of war. He gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And then the king of Sodom shows up. Now, I don't have to tell you that the king of Sodom is not a good guy. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah really messed up, and we know the judgment of God that happens later on. The king of Sodom says, here, here's a whole bunch of stuff, spoils of war, take it. And what does Abraham say? Abraham says, nope, I am not going to take anything. I won't even take a thread to a sandal strap. Is that because Abraham is such a godly, good, and righteous man? No. I want you to be impressed with the fact that this is Abraham who has experienced the blessing of God by the high priest. Let me say that again. This is Abraham and how he lives in godly fashion because of the blessing of the great high priest. This isn't about how good and godly Abraham was, but how good and generous God is. And you know what? God gets the credit. God gets the glory, not Abraham. This is not about how great Abraham is. This is about how great the high priest is. And Melchizedek is a type of the one to come. Okay, let's get back to Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, it's good, you won't, I'm sure you'll agree, that we took a few minutes there just to look at the background in Genesis chapter 14. So in verses 1 and 2, it says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. You know, it, this, it, this is really incredibly significant here. This Melchizedek wasn't just a priest. He was both a king and a priest. Now, I want you to think of the old covenant order of priests. The priests were not kings. The kings were not priests. But here we have one who is both king and priest. This points to Jesus, the king and high priest of the Most High God. Jesus, as king, is both king of righteousness and king of peace. This is so important. In Isaiah 32, verse 17, it says this. It says that the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Do you see in that verse, Isaiah 32, 17, the connection between righteousness and peace? You know, a lot of us in this world are really desperate for peace. There is so much conflict going on in our world today, whether it would be between warring nations, warring tribes, warring people groups, warring ethnic groups. Then there are wars that go on within our country. How about between the Democrat and Republican Party, liberal and conservative, 
War, war, war. How about the wars and divisions that happen in our workplace, even in churches, in our families, even in a marriage, even struggling within our own lives? We have a great need of peace. But really, our great need is righteousness. Because it says in Isaiah 32, 17, that the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And so in this one who is of the order of Melchizedek, the one who is king of righteousness and king of peace, we see the bringing together of these two great needs that we have, righteousness and peace. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, it says this, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually, or some versions say remains a priest forever. Now, this is a really significant point that's going to be developed here in Hebrews chapter 7 about the never-ending priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this really plays into the large theme that keeps coming up over and over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews of the so much better, the infinitely better of the new covenant over the old covenant, the covenant of grace over the covenant of law. And here, the so much better talks about the really not just so much better, but infinitely better priesthood of the new covenant, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ versus, and his blood and sacrifice versus the priest's the many priests, the endless priests, it seems, uh, of the Old Covenant and all the blood that was shed under the Old Covenant. We can see the inferiority of the Law Covenant compared to the infinite superiority of the New Covenants. And then, as we look through in the different uh, aspects about this, the infinite superiority of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, compared to the infinite inferiority of the priesthood of the law, the priesthood of the old covenant. And a few of the points that come out here in Hebrews chapter 7, first of all, in verse 6, it says that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. And it's interesting that what's brought out is, uh, it says you could say that Levi, remember that's the tribe of the priests, paid tithes, who was still in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. And it says in verse 7 that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Levi, who is the head of the Levitical line in verses 9 and 10, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. Now that's interesting. Priests usually receive the tithes. They don't pay tithes. And yet, in other words, the lesser priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, paid tithes to the superior priesthood, Melchizedek, and by extension, 
Jesus Christ, the great high priest. And see, this gets back, we got to remember what I was saying at the very beginning of our podcast was, why do we need a great high priest in the first place? And remember, we went through all of those reasons in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 of our needs that can only be satisfied with a perfect high priest. The problem is, under the covenant of law, that's why the law is so inferior, there was no fulfillment. There was no ending because there was no perfection. And this idea gets played out even further as we go on in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Well, I'm afraid our time is just getting away from us. So we're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 7 and uh, go deeper into the need that we have for a new priesthood, a new high priest. And... Um, We'll be looking at a very important question uh, brought up in verse 11. Uh, If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? You see, under the covenant of law, what you had was sinners, sinful men who were offering sacrifices of blood of animals. That comes far short. That's why they had to keep offering those sacrifices over and over again. It was never enough. You say, well, why in the world did God require it in the first place? Well, it was actually the mercy of God as a temporary arrangement for the final fulfillment and perfection that would come with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why uh, this theme keeps coming up over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. The so much better, the infinitely better of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this really gets into this problem that we have of mixing law and grace, mixing two covenants. And, you know, I still have a tendency to do that every once in a while, and God has to kind of set me straight. Someone might say, well, wait a minute, Mark. What about the Ten Commandments? Don't you think we should keep the Ten Commandments? Well, the Bible says that if you uh, bring yourself under part of the law, remember there's about 614 commandments and regulations under the law, which is a whole binding covenant, then you are responsible for the whole thing. And if you violate any part of the law entire, you are guilty of all and you are under a curse. That's why Jesus satisfied all 614 commandments and regulations and brought us into an infinitely better arrangement. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If I could be very succinct and really make a very important fundamental point, it's this. The center of the covenant of law, the old covenant, is us. The center of the new covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, wait a minute, Mark. The center of the old covenant, the covenant of law, is us? That's right. You see, God says, you think you're righteous? Okay, here's my holy standard. All of it. 614 commandments and regulations. I want you to keep it all perfectly. And when Jesus came, by the way, he took the law and put it on steroids. He said, you can't just have 
outward obedience to the law. You have to have perfect obedience from the heart. The law made no one righteous. The law exposes sinners and condemns them. It is a ministry of death and condemnation. It leaves a person in the state of saying, woe unto me. It'll leave us in the state of the man in Romans chapter 7 who says, uh, what, what a wretched man I am. But the solution is not you. The solution is another person altogether. Remember what I said about the need for a high priest? Implicit in saying we need a priest is the idea that the solution is independent of ourselves. That's so important to understand. It's so important for us to see. The answer is not me. And a lot of Christians will say, yeah, Mark, that's true. Uh, that's how we get into the Christian life, but that's not how we live the Christian life. That's ridiculous. The whole reason why God has set this whole thing up this way, grace, is because of his glory. So why would God abandon a glory principle for living the Christian life? Look, the way that you got into the Christian life is the way that you go through the Christian life. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not Jesus plus something else. It certainly is not Jesus plus you. If you have a little bit of a hard time with that, hang in there as we continue through the book of Hebrews, point upon point upon point, we'll lay the strong foundation of the infinite superiority, the infinite better that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your heart of love in giving your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we have been in the word in Hebrews chapter 7, we are becoming more and more aware of how wonderful he is as our perfect, great high priest. Father, we don't rely upon our own human understanding to get this, to grasp this. Father, would you, by the Spirit, bring understanding, illumination of him, illumination of Jesus as Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, the one who did it all, the one who offered as a perfect high priest, a perfect offering with perfect blood, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect death, a perfect resurrection, a perfect ascension, a perfect ruling at your right hand, dear Father. And we promise to give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.